Thanks for tuning in as we elevate clinical endocrinology by taking deep dives into trends and topics that can help us improve our patient care and global health. Find the latest episodes on aace.com slash podcasts. And now let's meet the endocrine experts who will be talking with us today. Welcome to this podcast on the ACE guidelines for the diagnosis and treatment of postmenopausal osteoporosis. I am Dr. Stephen Petak, Director of the Division of Endocrinology at the Houston Methodist Hospital and Associate Clinical Professor at Weill Cornell Medical College. I am joined by Dr. Pauline Camacho, Professor of Medicine, Director of the Loyola University Osteoporosis and Metabolic Bone Disease Center, and Dr. Nelson Watts, Director of Mercy Healthy Osteoporosis and Bone Health Services in Cincinnati, Ohio. So first, let me start off. Dr. Camacho, could you let us know something about the prevalence of osteoporosis and fractures? Well, as we know, Steve, osteoporosis is a huge problem in the world. But in the U.S., among adults over the age of 50, there are 10 million with osteoporosis and 43 million with low bone mass. Now, it is estimated that by 2030, there will be more than 13 million individuals with osteoporosis. And fractures are just very common. As an example, the lifetime risk of an osteoporotic fracture for a woman approaches 50%. It's very important, of course, to make a diagnosis, and the key tool that we have in order to determine who might be at risk is bone densitometry. Unfortunately, there are issues associated with quality of these studies, and Dr. Watts, do you have any concerns or comments regarding bone densitometry? Probably the first barrier is to get the test done initially. Often that doesn't happen. Uh, It's recommended that everybody has a bone density test eventually, depending on how many birthdays they've had. So for women age 65, if they're not any other concerns, and sooner around menopause, if there's a family history of osteoporosis, any one of the diseases or medications that can lower bone density or increase fracture risk. Quality is certainly important. You want to have a number that makes sense. Bone density is not all that complicated, but in many centers doing them in the hospital with technologists that spend more of their time doing mammograms or MRIs and radiologists who deal with more higher level imaging studies, some of the subtleties can be lost. I try to make it a point in my consultative practice to get the actual printouts for individual bone density tests. And sometimes I have two or three years or more, not uncommonly can find some minor technical issues that would make monitoring problematic and sometimes some major issues that would misclassify patients. Important to understand that if a patient had two or three tests on the same day, we'd get slightly different results, just getting off the table and back on again. They're not in exactly the same position about once a month I'll see a new patient with the story. Well, last time it was osteopenia. This time it's osteoporosis. And my response is, but it really didn't change. If you're right at that cusp, if you're right at that cusp, there will be tests on the same day that could put you on either side of that dividing line. All right. So under the ACE guidelines, we have a definition of osteoporosis somewhat expanded. Dr. Camacho, would you like to comment on the new ACE recommendations regarding diagnosis? Yes, definitely. So under the new guidelines, we have four diagnostic criteria for osteoporosis. The first one we're all very familiar with, a T-score that is negative 2.5 or below in the lumbar spine, femoral neck, total hip, 
or as an alternate site, the distal third of the radius. So that's number one. Second, if your patient has a history of a low trauma spine or hip fracture, regardless of the bone mineral density, that is osteoporosis. But it's important to rule out other metabolic bone disorders, because that may not necessarily be osteoporosis, you know, if they have osteomalacia, for example. Number three criterion would be a T-score between negative one and negative 2.5 and a history of a fragility fracture of the proximal humerus, pelvis, or distal forearm. And lastly, T-score between negative one and negative 2.5 and a high FRAC score that is based on the country-specific threshold. So these are the new criteria that we have in the 2020 guidelines. Hopefully these changes will help us identify more patients that are at high risk for fracture and get them on treatment appropriately. And I think that is one of the critical issues uh, that the guidelines have addressed. Pertaining to the evaluation, there are a lot of disorders and diseases that can occur that can cause low bone mass fractures. And we are concerned about how much to do in any given patient. We can certainly expand our evaluation as required, but what, Dr. Watts, what would you consider to be a basic evaluation for osteoporosis? I'll start with a history, and that would include a history of fractures. There are certain locations that we don't pay attention to, although they may inconvenience or be serious for the patient. We don't think of skull, face, hands, feet, fingers, toes as related to osteoporosis, but we do focus on humerus, forearm, spine, pelvis, and femur, and the circumstances for those fractures. Family history of osteoporosis, and that's sort of easy to say, but hard to do. If both parents died in their 30s, then it may be somewhat irrelevant to family history. If they have parents still living in their 90s and a a large extended family and no history, that's certainly of, of interest. There's a growing list of diseases and medications associated with an increased fracture risk. And while it's good that most of the medications that we use to treat osteoporosis don't have drug interactions, we need to be on the lookout for medications used to treat other diseases that may adversely affect bone health. Physical exam, there's not a lot to look for. Uh, Osteoporosis is a silent disease, but kyphosis, head to wall distance, uh, loss of the normal space between the bottom of the ribs and the top of the pelvis. Many of the insurance companies that we query about medications want to know the patient's oral exam. And so I've uh, consistently looked at the teeth and make a note about oral exam. If there are major issues that I can see, then I'd like the patient to go to their dentist and get a treatment plan before we work with them. Laboratory-wise, I'd like to at least know kidney function and blood calcium levels. They're usually okay, but decreased kidney function can be a risk factor for fracture and also a a factor to take into consideration with uh, bisphosphonate therapy for osteoporosis. Blood calcium level, if it's low or high, suggests that there are other diseases that need to be worked out before we embark on the osteoporosis pathway. I like to get a 25-hydroxyvitamin D I don't know any other way to assess vitamin D status. Nice to have a blood count, but Medicare makes it hard unless I I have a diagnosis that will support getting that. In many cases with the electronic health record, most if not all of the tests that I'm interested in have already been done. 
A bone density test, as Dr. Camacho says, is a way to diagnose osteoporosis and also get some idea about the severity, uh, how aggressive we might want to be in further testing or, or further treatment. And if there's a suggestion that the patient may have had a vertebral fracture, either a vague history or height loss, kyphosis, decrease in the space between the bottom of the ribs, the top of the pelvis, imaging of the spine, which can be done with DEXA or uh, lateral spine x-rays. If there are any clues that there might be some other relevant disease or other disease that may have relevance for the patient, then we can pursue whatever pathways would be appropriate. Thank you for those comments. Dr. Camacho, as far as basic recommendations on lifestyle, diet and exercise, and other supplements, these are questions that most patients often have. And uh, what kind of advice would you give for giving recommendations? I think the uh, non-pharmacologic management for osteoporosis is really very important. And I always go through this with my patients during their visits. First, it's important to make sure that they have adequate calcium and vitamin D. So ACE recommends 1,200 milligrams of calcium for women 51 and older. And the 1,200 is the sum total of everything that they're taking in. So that includes their diet, other multivitamins, for example, as long as the total is 1,200. For vitamin D, we recommend one to 2,000 IU per day for 50 and older, but we have a target target, the optimal level is 30 to 50 nanogram per ml. Now, recognizing that there are certain conditions that can increase the requirements. So that recommendation may not apply to, for example, someone who had gastric bypass or extremely obese, the requirements will be higher. A weight-bearing exercises, I think, is important. I also think that balance exercises for the elderly are helpful. If your patient is smoking, they should stop smoking. Do what you can to convince them to stop. Always take note of their alcohol intake and limiting caffeine consumption also. And then for the elderly, prevention of falls. The average fall rate for someone who is, let's say, in their 80s can be as much as two to three times a year. And we know that there are certain conditions, for example, strokes that can increase their fall risk. So I always go over this with my patients during their visits. So those are equally important as pharmacologic management and should always be done during the visits. Well, thank you very much. Turning to pharmacotherapy, what patients are most likely to require pharmacotherapy and what options would you consider based on their fracture risk? I would quibble with the term require. It's been a long time since I've told patients, this is what you should do. I can give them information and they'll make their own decisions. The main benefit of the drugs that we have is to reduce the risk of fracture. And the challenge there is I can't measure what doesn't happen. I'm happy to have patients who come in and say, well, I fell and I didn't break anything. Thank you. But we often judge the effectiveness of medications by changes in bone density. I do see younger patients who've crossed into that osteoporosis threshold, but with a risk calculator, have a low risk of fracture. And for them, I tell them treatment is optional. And for patients who haven't made it yet, but in the osteopenia range, as Dr. Camacho said, we can use FRAX to identify those who, based on age or other risk factors, are at high enough risk that it makes sense to prescribe medication to reduce their risk of fracture. 
younger patients, I may sometimes prescribe medication with the goal of improving bone density, even though at their young age, their risk of fracture may not be high, but with the idea that if we can get some improvement in bone density now, that would have some advantage for them later on. Do you have changes and recommendations based on those patients who may be at exceptionally high fracture risk as far as what therapy options might be best for them? Well, first of all, I think it's important to look at the clinical trials that support the drug approval and see what fracture risk reduction occurred. Don't get trapped by comparing point estimates of this trial showed a 70% reduction and that showed a 68% reduction because the competence intervals are broad. But categorically, the medications that I'd like to use long-term are the ones that have been shown to reduce the risk of hip fracture and non-vertebral fracture in addition to reducing the risk of spine fracture, the most common pathway that drugs get approved. There are four, in my judgment, that those criteria. There are two oral bisphosphonates, alendronate and resedronate. There's an intravenous bisphosphonate, zoledronic acid, and there's a twice-a-year injection, denosumab, that have what I'll call broad-spectrum anti-fracture efficacy. We think of bone remodeling as breaking down and building up, and the target for the drugs I've mentioned was to slow the rate of bone breakdown, but there are three medications that were developed to increase bone buildup, bone formation, And those are drugs that I would consider in patients at very high risk, those with a recent fracture, those whose bone density is off the bottom of the scale or or dropping faster than what we'd expect for age, race, and sex. Those drugs have time limits, teriparatide and abaloparatide or daily injections that the patient would self-administer with a two-year time limit. Romosozumab is a monthly injection that's given in the office that has a 12-month time limit. And that time limit is because the anabolic effect diminishes over time. Important to understand that medications for chronic conditions work for as long as they're taken. And if they're stopped, the benefits go away. There's a misconception with bisphosphonates that we can only give them for five years. Now, higher risk patients, we recommend taking them longer. And the other medications, denosumab, teriparatide, abaloparatide, romosozumab, Uh, Benefits all go away within 12 to 18 months of stopping. So if you're choosing one of these anabolic or dual action agents, it's important to have some thoughts for the future. When that one year or two year is up, what are you going to be doing to maintain or add to those gains over the long term? Thank you very much. Frequently, physicians and patients want to know, well, is what they're doing working? And so the issue comes up as, well, how best to monitor therapy? Dr. Camacho, what would you recommend? Well, I think, first of all, we recommend that patients are reassessed yearly for response to treatment and fracture risk. Now, that response is not necessarily doing a DEXA once a year, although it is good to see what's going on with their bone density either once a year or every other year. But there are other things that you go over too when you see these patients. You want to look at their compliance to treatment. You want to look at their adverse events and uh, look for signs or of increasing fracture risk or fall risk. 
So what I usually do is I use bone densitometry to assess their response to treatment. And most of the time I do it once a year, but for some patients such as Medicare patients, it's every other year. I also find bone turnover markers to be useful, particularly during the years when I am not able to get a bone density. And then of course, number one, we always ask about fractures. That is our ultimate endpoint, right? We are trying to prevent fractures. So these are the things that are important during the follow-up for patients. If I can add to that, I often am asked, I have a patient on treatment and they've had a fracture, does that indicate a treatment failure? And while that's certainly not the desired outcome, I would argue that maybe they would have fractured sooner or had even more fractures had they not been treated. I would then think, is there something maybe better, more effective? But in some cases, the answer is they're already doing everything they should. So when we look at fracture reduction or fracture prevention, we're really not preventing all the fractures. We're just preventing some. And a a fracture is certainly important to know about, but may not mean that you've lost track of things. Thank you very much. Uh, There have been tremendous advances in the evaluation and therapeutics of osteoporosis, but there are certainly room for further study and there are questions that still are open. So Dr. Watts, do you have comments regarding what future study is necessary in this field? I'd like to expand that to say what efforts are important in the future because systematically we're not doing a very good job at primary prevention, getting bone density tests for the folks who haven't yet had fractures to find those at high risk. And we're not doing a very good job, by and large, at secondary prevention. Patients who've had fractures aren't getting evaluated and offered treatment for osteoporosis. Our situation would be like a heart surgeon who does a bypass, but nobody treats the cholesterol or the blood pressure or the diabetes to prevent things from getting worse. So we certainly need to do a better job, and at least for secondary prevention, a fracture liaison service where there's a dedicated individual to take the patients who entered the system with a fracture and move them through an appropriate pathway for evaluation and for many of them on to treatment. One of my frustrations is the desire to practice evidence-based medicine. And one of the worst things I can hear is there is no evidence that. And oftentimes it's nobody's looked at the evidence. There is no evidence that calcium supplements reduce fracture risk. But I don't think the studies have been done to formally address that. Uh, Another society has guidelines that says you should stop treatment after five years. Well, that I think is because we don't have evidence from placebo control trials that go beyond three or four years. And we never will. It's not ethical to do that. But we don't recommend stopping antihypertensives after five years. I don't know what kind of long-term studies there are for those or for statins or for diabetes treatment. The studies that we do have typically are extension studies where everybody gets the treatment. And the studies that I'm aware of that have looked at that suggest that fracture risks stay low and that that would be a benefit. As far as I know, there aren't any other medications in the pipeline. It would be awfully nice to have some other choices for long-term treatment. I think having some new additions on the anabolic side, the sort of rescue drugs for patients who are further along, we're in a pretty good place there. There are some 
black clouds that probably are fairly small, but get blown out of proportion, the osteonecrosis of the jaw and atypical femur fractures, we are learning more about them. And for the vast majority of patients, the benefits of these treatments far outweigh the risk of the remote chance that those safety issues could occur. But the challenge for the patient is they'll read a flyer that's official, and it says these things have been reported. And they have absolutely no idea how frequently they come about or what are the circumstances under which they occur. I have patients who pretty much made up their mind because of what they've seen or the list of side effects. And I insist that they add potential when they're thinking about side effects because most of these medications, patients take them and don't have any problems whatsoever. So better patient education, better awareness would, would also be helpful. Well, thank you very much. In summary, I would say that there are still significant gaps in care. We're hoping that these guidelines address not only these gaps, but also the best way to identify, evaluate, and determine who is best uh, candidate for pharmacotherapy. And we're hoping that this certainly reduces the burden of fractures and the disabilities, increased morbidity and mortality associated with them. So I do want to thank our distinguished panel for this discussion and hope this has been of value to you. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to another great AACE podcast. Join us for another episode at aace.com slash podcasts and help us in our mission to elevate clinical endocrinology. Together, we are AACE.